meth. Six. Not even once. It's Unless. <laughs> I don't even know how you recover this. Is it possible to segue this? No. Um, Not wise to. Mm. Copy Ms. Hitler. Man, I managed to segue off of freaking dropping. Well, that segues. <laughs> Welcome to Cross Training, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. That's right. That's right. We're not. We we don't do we don't do smooth segues anymore. We just take hard rights, hard rights, hard lefts, like just hard turns. You, you don't know what we're gonna do. We're like wild caught Alaskan salmon. I do like I do like some salmon. I do as well, but I don't like how this is going already. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Matthew Thompson. I'm Mason Simmons. And I'm Tanner Higgins. <gasps> yeah, we we've descended back into chaos. He's That's back. right. That was a horrible one. Yeah, this this intro has been an absolute daggum train wreck, but we're going to recover it through the content because, we're, I mean, goodness, we got we got two weeks left. We're, we're about at the, the end of the book of John. This has been quite the adventure. Uh, it We kind of just started it just thinking, oh, man, it'd be cool to, to study through the book of John, but this is this has become a lot more than I think we, we bargained for, in a good way, of course. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's been a good, good ride, but I'll be frankly honest is that, you know, I'm ready to kind of shift gears a little bit. Because doing in-depth studies, even though it is re- very rewarding, but it can be also taxing at the same time. I was about to say, it, it can get pretty exhausting. Yeah, like, yeah. There have been episodes where after we uh, get finished recording, I'm just like, oh, I need a nap. I mean, how many times, Mason, have you, when you, after you preach and after you study and you prepare, it's like you're spiritually and physically drained. Oh, every time. E- every time. And so I think to me in, this, in, in itself, this is kind of in the same realm as like studying in-depth at scripture it can be physically and spiritually draining yeah doing a consistent deep dive through a book of scripture like it requires you to be in a very specific mindset it's been 21 plus weeks because there's been i mean what two or three chapters that we split in half yeah yeah but this is uh john chapter 20 that we're gonna be talking on today and we're not we're gonna be splitting it in half uh it's got goodness how many verses i think it's around like 30 ish 31 yeah, 31. So, I mean, that, that can be hit in one episode. So, we'll, we'll be going through this a little faster uh, than the last two. But I, I do think that we benefited quite a bit from uh, splitting the last chapter in half. That was a good one to study. Uh, but this one is also uh, very good, much like all the other chapters of John, obviously, uh, mainly because we get reminded of who the uh, beloved disciple is. So, without further ado, I'm going to read the first two verses of the chapter. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them. So who, who, who was this disciple that wasn't Peter? Like, I just can't, I can't figure it out. Who, who, do, you, who do you think it was? I swear, We've like, said this like 10 billion <laughs> times. It's beating a dead horse. John is just freaking loved. By the Lord, apparently. It just by makes me think about, like, is. The Rock talking about himself oh in third God. person. Like, The Rock is the great one. John Lord. is the beloved disciple. Like, I want to just imagine that John never referred to himself outside of the third person, and he was always referring to himself as the beloved the disciple. The is always <laughs> <laughs> But that's John. Here we're introduced to Mary Magdalene coming and going early in the morning. And so other... I want to make mention here that in John it only makes mention of Mary, but it's not just Mary. In other synoptic gospels, it has some other women with her, and I think that one reason why Mary is only mentioned here is because she's the only one that runs back to the disciples to tell them of this. And John is probably just recognizing one individual that was there and came back was a little bit more vocal. Because I mean, 
I think that if there was a group of people and one spoke above everyone else, I think we'd recognize that individual. So that's probably why. And also, if we look back at the uh, last chapter, uh, Jesus has told John to look after Mary. Yeah. So. Um, Wait. That was a different Mary. Yeah. I'm getting my Marys mixed up. Still Mary. But <laughs> Still Mary. Still Mary. Mary. Uh, but to kind of give you a little bit more of a context of what's going on and the reason why these women are kind of approaching the tomb is that they had to rush to get Jesus in the grave because he was crucified before the Sabbath and, you know, during the Passover festival. And so for things to get done quicker, quickly, they had to kind of skip some steps on like the quote-unquote bombing, embalming process and basically put him and this dude of Arimathea's tomb. And so... Um, Elaborate on that. I didn't. I didn't do any personal studying on that note. But I'm. What do you mean? This tomb that belonged to someone else. I'm so, unfamiliar uh, with this. So Joseph of Arimathea, he was a dude uh, that was. We are going to assume that he was a Christ follower, and the guy from the last chapter. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Which I did not. I did not participate in because I was doing. Okay. We did discuss a little bit over him. Yeah, but yeah, it was like. Joseph Arimathea kind of, it was like he almost understood, which I, I, this is a discussion that would be kind of interesting to have, but it was like he almost understood that like it's a borrowed tomb. But the thing we got to understand is that tombs were not just, you know, a casket going into the grave and you never open up. It was a family tomb. So it's like basically each time a family member dies, you can roll that stone away and enter into that tomb and put another body. So there's always like three or four places for a body to be placed within a family tomb. And so that's why they do, quote-unquote, embalming processes, put herbs and spices about around the body because when they have to enter into that tomb again to place another body from the family members that have, you know, been placed there, it won't just stink to high heavens and decay is just outrageously out of control. And so that was why the women came because they had to rush the embalming process, herbs and spices, to smell the body. So that's why they're coming basically over the after the weekend's over, to finish that process over to Joseph of Arimathea, which basically, not a family member. It's not a family, he's not a family member, not a, so it's not a family tomb for Jesus. It's just a, it's like a, a borrowed tomb in that sense. So, I mean, the topic can be discussed. Did Joseph of Arimathea understand the concept of what Jesus was talking about, the resurrection? It's like, well, it's just a borrowed grave. Did he understand that he won't be there for long? Or is it just like, hey, buddy, you can, you can borrow mine? Because I've got plenty of room. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, that, there's not really much. I don't think. How do we know that that was his his tomb though, or his family's tomb? Like that's what I'm asking. Like how, where where is that information coming from? Well, I think there's not really one set verse in the saying that this is Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb, but it could be. But it does say that it is the tomb of J- Joseph of Arimathea. So we can. The most plausible answer is that it's. Either he bought the tomb, like the property out, or it is actually his family grave. Or maybe this Joseph Arimathea was a rich guy and he bought the property in that sense, bought the tomb, and it's like, Jesus, you can have this. Okay. All right. I just. I don't know. I mean, I that, I'm that. just going by speculation of what scripture says. Yeah. That's my best guess. Okay. I, mean, I just hadn't caught that. So that, that was when I was reading, I was like, huh. But, okay. I mean, just based off historical stuff, I mean, you're. I think I agree with you 100%. I think it was either his, his family's, or just, I mean, like you said, somebody's that he had bought for Jesus. I'm not too sure what to think, of though, about how he, 
if he really understood what Jesus was trying to say about the resurrection, that's interesting. I think it really could go either way. My guess, personally, what I've always thought before is that I, he's probably just trying to, and kind of like what we touched on last week, Matthew, is he was just probably trying to make up for being the quiet one in the crowd, just falling around. He was he finally stepped up and he was like, it's the right thing to do. Okay, so this goes back to the previous chapter. Did you all talk about that much? It sounds like... We the, talked about him, but not in that um, area. Well, it sounds like... Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, yeah. surprise, surprise, yeah. mm-hmm. basically in fear that Pilate was basically going to discard the body yeah. mm-hmm. like trash yeah. mm-hmm. and said, okay, we got to hurry up and do this and do it quick. And so I, I, it looks like Joseph uh, and Nicodemus petitioned with Pilate, like, let us have the body and let's go bury it properly instead of just put it upon the trash heap of Gehenna, uh, where the dead bodies of criminals uh, lied in that first century context. So, I mean, it sounds like they were trying to preserve the body. Maybe not. Maybe he didn't understand the context of the resurrection, but yet it was basically to respectfully uh, take the body of his uh, teacher that he followed. So I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, first off, Mary Magdalene, she was also a follower that was cleansed of seven demons. I don't know if we, I don't think it was in this chapter. That's from from Luke. Was it in Luke? Luke, yeah. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't in the book of John, but yet... Mary Magdalene was a woman that was cleansed by Jesus and was personally, you know, in in following Jesus. And let's also make a little caveat that this is not Jesus' wife or any kind of sexual relations whatsoever. Because if there was, guess what? It would probably be recorded. And so anyone that watches the Da Vinci Code or does this weird, like, Book of Thomas type of study. And is stuff that still like that, a thing? Oh, like, I remember that being, like, a controversy when it came out, but I was also, like, too I'm young sure, to give a crap. I'm sure that that, that controversy has kind of, kind of sailed off, but I'm sure there's someone out there obscure that agrees with that concept of Mary Magdalene and kind of the sexual relations with Christ, and there's a Christ-child lineage today. But needless to say, if it happened, it had been recorded, and there was no re- recording of that thing. It was just a woman that loved Christ because he's the Savior. Uh, but it's, it's funny to note that Mary's reaction uh, of the stone being rolled away, that she assumed that someone took the body of Christ. She makes the, she makes a statement, uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So she makes the accusation of someone's taken the body. Uh, now, who, what, what's, your, what's your first thought? Who do you think she's referring to? Like, Who's she trying to accuse? Do you think she's trying to accuse somebody of someone stealing the body of Christ? I think it's just a general statement. Like, just, like, I can imagine her just being panicked, being like, they took her. Or, they took her. They took him. Like, who? I don't know. I'm just saying. He's been taken. They took him. I don't know who they is. Like, that sort of thing, you know. I mean, it'd be like if you walk by uh, a store and, like, it, you saw signs of it being robbed. be like, they robbed the store. Like, it's just a general term. Mm-hmm. I think that I mean that's just my like first impression off of it. My only guess would be the Pharisees, and it's because they probably want to. I mean, literally and figuratively, beat a dead horse or you know beat a dead man. And so here's here's some things I'd like to bring up. There are actually several theories of, or I want to say, arguments against the resurrection of Jesus. And this statement that she makes of someone stealing the body is part of this. So. There are uh, actually six theories of Jesus rising again, arguments against him actually rising. So uh, 
there are, is the fraud theory, the imposter theory, the swoon theory, the vision theory, the spirit theory, and the heart theory. But there's two possible answers or possibilities that people actually make today that this could she that she kind of aligns with. So the first one was a fraud theory. So the, this theory is that the disciples invented the entire thing after secretly stealing Jesus' body from the tomb. So she could have basically said they've stole their body, and the disciples lied about it. Like well, we actually stole the body so that you know the resurrection. He actually rose again. We'll just go forward and pretend that he actually rose again and continue our ministry. So that's an argument against the resurrection. The second one would be the swoon theory. And Jesus merely fainted on the cross and was later revived by the cool dark air of the tomb. And I think there are some, and there's I think there's another part where like the, and like you said, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, if they stole the body, and if they were the one that she was accusing, it doesn't make any sense because then it would make it would make what Jesus said that I will rise again on the third day true. So it's basically there if 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 the Pharisees and Sadducees stole Christ's body, my opinion, I think it doesn't make sense because then they're proving Jesus' point and it gives more lividity to the Christians. You know what I mean? Not the slightest. Really? You don't you don't think so? Or you just don't I don't even think I understand what you're trying to say. If the Pharisees and Sadducees stole the body, stole the body, they would basically put a point in the Christian camp. Because now, because Jesus said he was going to rise again, and the reason why they sealed the tomb off is so that they can prove that the body cannot come out of the tomb. If they stole the body, then that's saying that gives people uh, and Christians and the, and the people of Jerusalem saying, "Oh, he did rise again. Where's the body?" So the only reason why I think they would steal the body is to prove, hey, look, he's dead. To prove that he's dead. And that's my only reason. If they hid the body, then that would give evidence for the Christians. Yeah, I don't think that they would have hid it if they if they stole yeah. it. But I guess I, I guess I kind of see what you're saying now. That if he wasn't in the tomb, it kind of raises speculation. Like, did he raise again? Yeah, no, I see what you're saying now. But it's since they didn't since they didn't bring the body forward, then that's showing me that they didn't steal the body. So and these are all arguments for like atheists and Muslims that say that Jesus uh, uh, did not actually rise again from the dead. I know the swoon theory is a big one for uh, Muslims that say, well, Jesus, he just he just he just he just uh, was hurt real bad, and and the coolness of the dark cave it healed him. I'm thinking, hold on. Now we're assuming that Romans are really bad at their jobs and can't kill nobody. Is that the official term, swoon? Is that the official name of that theory? Because yes. that's hilarious. Swoon. Swoon? Like out of all the words to use, swoon? I mean, obviously I understand that the English language probably functions differently now than it did when that name was uh, come up with. But like when I think of swoon, I, th- I think of someone making fun of the fact that someone's like, well, that's not even a word to use for feigning. That's something you uh, use for, like, a reciprocation of flirt uh, of flirting. Like, if you flirt with someone and they're a fan of, uh, of what you're saying, they swoon. <laughs> like well, see, all these theories, they, to me, it just doesn't make any logical sense. Yeah. That, like, the vision theory is where the disciples were on some kind of primitive LSD that made them think that they saw Jesus rising from the dead. All right, well, Mason's come in clutch with uh, some dictionary definition, and swoon actually does mean faint. Like, that is the stock uh, use of the word. So I guess 
like what I'm saying is just a result of it becoming like slangified, mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, I didn't doubt that like that's the meaning of the word. Just saying, like when I when I hear swoon, like I definitely don't think faint. Well, I mean, I don't think the Romans would steal the body. So, I mean, I think we've made an argument that it doesn't make sense that the Pharisees would steal the body and not present it before the people say, look, he's still dead. He did not rise again like he said he would. So to me, that shows that that theory is shot in the dark. And now the Romans, what would make them, why would they steal the body? And she would think that they stole the body. Well, we've already discussed about how Scripture paints a pretty clear picture of the Romans overall not caring much at all about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, they literally do not care enough to do something like that. Like, it's just, it's not of their concern. Like, that that's implying that they put a lot of stock in this Jesus guy, and they, they don't. Like, they, they almost literally could not care less. I think overall, though, I think that this kind of shows that Mary doesn't understand or was basically looking at things that, No one has fully understood what just happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're about to learn that even... First assumptions. That even John hasn't, like, fully understood the concept of, like, oh, a resurrection is going to have to occur. So here in verse 3 and 4, it says, So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Listen, okay. For a moment, you're like, oh, he didn't say beloved. I know, but even for a moment, when the boys start getting rolling... A time of humility is overrun by, like, outran Peter. If he's not the beloved disciple, he's the faster disciple. <laughs> he's like in elementary school when you're, like, challenging all your friends to a race. But I bet you I can run to the lunchroom faster than you. That's John. That's John right here. I bet you I can reach our Lord and Savior faster than you, Peter. <laughs> he just, I mean, I love John the death, but he irritates the fire out of me. I mean, come on. Oh, just, I love it. I love it. Because that, that's, it's funny because, uh, and let, let's look at this kind of semi-seriously, uh, was it, it's Mark that's, uh, we believe is written from like Peter's point of view, correct? The book of Mark? I'm not sure about that. It's either Mark or Luke. I'm pretty sure it's, no, Mark's the, well, no, yeah. Whatever, one of them, Mark or Luke. But uh, an important thing when reading whichever book it is that's uh, theoretically, uh, as far as we know, uh, written from Peter's point of view is it doesn't really hype him up. Like Peter doesn't brag on himself in, in that book. And he does include the um, instance of him like walking on water but failing. Like his failures are there. Or no, crap, no, goodness, D- ignore me. It doesn't include him walking on water, but it does include him uh, denying Christ. Like that's that's the, the important difference there. And it really does a good job of painting a picture of like how humble Peter has gotten as a result of all the uh, the failures uh, that come from him, like making these big claims and then being taken down a peg. So the contrast between that and then you have John taking every opportunity out of the sun and be like, yeah, I'm the, I'm, I'm the beloved disciple. Well, yeah, I ran faster than Peter. Well, honestly, though, if you read through the book of John and didn't hone in on those contexts and the clues and the context clues that he is saying that, I don't think he's blatantly pouring himself over that and saying, look at me, look at me. Oh, yeah. and I, I, I think it's very shallow. I think we touched on this last week, uh, Mason, the, the value that there that exists in John constantly referring to himself is that he is presenting an eyewitness account 
Like he is functioning as a living witness of the things that are happening. This isn't just something that he's gathered from the, the hearsay of uh, people at the local tavern. No, th- this is, I saw this, I was there. This is a firsthand account of what happened. I, I believe he does like pretty much say that um, in chapter 19, talk about how he bears witness to this stuff. So um, a function that comes from him referring to himself several times throughout the book is that he's offering that, that eyewitness firsthand account. Like, take my word for it. I was there. So let's also take notice, too, that church history tradition has noted that Peter was actually older than John. So I think that uh, tradition has stated that during this time, Peter's probably in his mid-40s. And I think John's like maybe in his late 20s, somewhere around there, mid-20s. And so, I mean, I'm sorry, but yeah, I'm going to outrun a 40-year-old. Well, I don't know. It depends on how fit he is. I was about I to say. I mean, they're probably fit. But I'm, I'm just saying, I mean... On average, a twenty-something-year-old is going to outrun a forty-something-year-old, so yeah. it does make. Well, he's got dad strength, though. In your forties, you get dad bod. And Peter's got that dad bod. He is married. Well, I don't think dad bods would be a thing at the time, because like you either work or you die <laughs> back then. Like you had to be physically fit. It wasn't cool back then. I mean, there's not enough trans fats in people's foods to to give them the the dad bod. <laughs> So if anything, he's just got pure dad strength. He's got like nitro boosters. That's how you keep up with the kids. Did Peter have kids? It's not recorded, is it? Well, I'm I'm just speaking like theoretically of like the time, like how how people would be built. But I don't know. I'm getting off topic. Yeah, we're definitely off topic. The, this is this is a that's what it was. This is a real fast and loose episode of Cross Training. <laughs> I, I managed to to. Um, Beat all odds, and we managed to stay on, on topic last week, so now that all three of us are in, are in the room, it's just... So let's get back to Scripture and ground ourselves. Uh, verses 5 through 10 says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So just uh, my uh, first reaction to this is I find it very interesting that verse 8 uh, said, then the other disciple, we'll talk about John, of course, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, which to me implies that prior to that, he did not. Like, what, what, do, you, what do you read out of that? Is, that? is that the implication you get, or is that kind of reading too far into the wording? I mean, obviously, John believes that, that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, that, that's not up for debate. But, like, what, what do you think can be implied from that being specified? And he saw and believed. What, what does that pertain to? I really don't, because the only thing that would make sense to me is that he believed that he rose again, but it says literally in the next verse that they didn't know yet. Well, couldn't the argument be made that that next verse that says, for as yet they did not understand, is explaining like what it means by he saw and believed? Like they believed because until that point, they didn't understand. It's not necessarily like chronological verses, if you get my meaning. I think this is something completely new for them. This whole concept, which they understand the concept of resurrection. This is something, you know, we see uh, Mary and Martha kind of understand the, of the, the end of age of the resurrection of the judgment day when he does finally return. But I think the resurrection presently within this 
situation of him actually coming back in flesh is something foreign almost. And so I think that, which I, this may be one reason why he made mention that he outran Peter, is because two different reactions of that, even though John got there first, that he peered into the tomb but didn't walk in. He saw the objects. It was clearly, I think, the, the Greek for, uh, for him to see, he saw was like a clear material object. Um, and so it's, it's, clear, it's good to note that he clearly saw the grave clothes and nothing else. And it could, be, it could not be mistaken for anything else. And so when Peter arrives later than John, he fits to his character and walks right in. Doesn't care about look, looking and seeing and doesn't care about any other kind of like stuff going around. He walks in. And then finally John steps up and goes in. So I think once they saw the grave clothes, and this is where that I think the way that the grave clothes are kind of positioned, and, I'm not, and I'll, I'll explain this here in a second, is that it kind of gives them, okay, so he did rise again. I think they kind of caught on some things, but yet I don't think they truly, fully understood. It's like he rose again, but what does that mean rising again? I don't think they understood that he rose again in the flesh because they haven't met him in the flesh yet. But they, I think they understood, okay, he wasn't stolen, like Mary thought. He he has risen again, but what does that mean? He there's a resurrection, but yet what does that consist of? So there's something I heard before in the past, and I I was like, oh wow, that sounds great. And then I did some study, and like, okay, no, that's not so great. So I think when it talks about the folded fa face covering, or in some translations it says the napkin that cover over the face, there is a bad exegesis of this, is where. Um, some have stated that this is symbolic of what Jesus did, that Jesus, when he rose again, that he folded up the face cloth and napkin and placed it there. And some people say that there are sources that state that Hebrew tradition, that when they're eating a meal and they leave the table, but they're not yet done with their meal, they would get that napkin and fold it and place it on the table to let the servant know that they're not, they're not done with that meal, that they're coming back. And this is actually false. Uh, and I want us to make this clear. It sounds good, but I think we're reading too much into this. We're looking for symbols that aren't there. So there is not one recorded evidence of first century Jewish practice that this ever appears. And this actually first appears in the Middle Ages. This is actually a Middle Age practice. But we as readers, we need to be careful not to hyper-symbolize things because if it sounds good and if it feels good, it doesn't mean it's always true. And sometimes, even though something biblically that sounds right, he's coming back. You know, he's he's folding the cloth. You know, he's not done with the dinner supper yet. He's coming back. It sounds good, but it's not historically accurate. So here's my thing: the reason why I think it's not the, the folded cloth, or it's just basically a body disappearing, and, and it's just kind of an orderly fashion where it's where it's setting. I think the significance is is that it was a the orderliness of the grave clothes is that his resurrection was not a chaotic one but one of purpose. Because think about it, if you're trying to steal the body and leave the grave clothes or or of that nature, it'd just be kind of ripped off and kind of just in shambles. You know, you look in the corner of your bedroom of clothing and your clothing basket, it's just rambling there. So it's not grave clothes that are just balled up and thrown in the corner. It's like purpose, purposefully and carefully placed there. There's no symbolism there. It's just meaning that his resurrection has purpose and it's not chaotic. That makes sense? Yeah. Um, two things. First off, Mason, did you have a response to the the wording of that verse? We kind of it, like going back to the Greek. It literally meant like they did not yet know, like that it, like they did not yet know that it was 
from the writings, from scriptures, from which in that time would be the Old Testament, that he was so, like supposed to rise. Like they they still didn't yet know that. At the full context of it, or just resurrection in general. So do do they? Think I mean, it doesn't tell us it, that. Or? I mean, it, it literally does not say anything about that, except for like they literally did not know. Let's see. So do you think that that means that verse nine is explaining what? what verse 8 is saying? Like, when it's saying that they also went in and he saw and believed, like that's a reference to them, like not understanding the scripture yet, like that's them, like the, the gears turning in the head, like is that kind of what can be uh, surmised from that? Yeah, probably. So I would say that here John probably finally understands because he did not know before that point what Jesus was saying. So I kind of I kind of would say that 9 is feeding off of 8. The verse 9 is feeding off of verse 8 saying okay. before this moment he didn't know yet. He still didn't know. Okay. And my other my other thing that I want to bring up um Tanner, we've brought up in the past uh, we've used the term exegesis multiple times um throughout cross trainings, wonderful history. Uh and we've explained what that means. What What's that eisegesis that you're saying? What does that mean? So exegesis is basically allowing first century to be the context that we read Scripture, that we, cannot, we do not need to allow our 21st century minds to influence what first century saying. Exegesis is basically the opposite of that, saying that it's bad interpretation because we read something in first century eyes, but we use it in a 21st century setting. So it's basically stepping ourselves into their shoes, but yet not taking their history, not taking their evidence, not taking their science, not taking the things that they know uh, into context of what's going on. So an example, which is not anything to do with John chapter 19, but remember Joshua, when he was fighting the battle, he said, allow the sun to set still. We cannot say that in a sense of like, because he thinks he's going off of a flat earth type of context because that's what they, they they think that the earth is flat and the earth is the center of the universe and it rises and sets and stuff like that in all context in reality the earth is the one that sets still and is not rotating the sun is not setting still but to his perspective it is setting still we cannot say that we do not we do not need to allow our 21st century minds to influence Scripture. We got to allow first century or whenever who is writing scripture to influence our 21st century minds. So basically, they're fancy theological words to acknowledge that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. I think that's a phrase we've used a couple times as well. Yes. So let's continue on in verse 11. So it's now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away and said, and I don't know where they have put him. So I think this is kind of interesting, too. It's just like with her crying and her upset, obviously we can assume that she doesn't fully understand it either. And she hasn't stepped into the tomb. It sounds like she's waited outside and John and Peter are already kind of out of the picture. They've already left. So they're no longer there. So now Mary steps in. So Mary, she remained outside crying and then went to look at what they had looked at and saw something different. Now, why do you think the angels appeared 
to Mary, and probably the other women too, but, but I mean, we're, it's, we're, we're hearing just Mary, but not to John and Peter. I'd say due to the fact that Peter and John were around Jesus so much, it's kind of on them to, they have more resources mentally to kind of piece together what's happening, whereas Mary Magdalene, there's more reason to believe that she needs a little bit more of a kind of a jump start to kind of get her head wrapped around like what's going on. Uh, moving on to uh, the angels talking to Mary, verses 14 through 18. Uh, it says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Oh, this is Jesus talking, not angels. Uh, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and, uh, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So, opening statement. Um, why doesn't she recognize Jesus? I haven't answered this, but I mean, just, just to get a conversation rolling, I'd, I'd like to, to present that question to the class. I don't think that he's hiding his identity from her. Uh, I mean, th there's a possibility for that. I mean, there could be a thing that he, he could be blinding her eyes in the sense of, of, of shading the reality that that's the, the Messiah. But I think that, like I said, the human element of, of her, that she's so upset and she doesn't understand that he's risen again, even with the angels there, and she's not understanding what's going on, is that so she's not expecting Jesus being right behind her. And with the tomb being around a garden, she's expecting that's just a garden. And asking a question like, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? That's not a trick question by Jesus, but yet that sounds like a statement that someone just randomly walking by asking a woman in distraught and a woman in distress, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? But to Jesus, this isn't, I don't think it's a trick question, but a question to break through Mary's unbelief and forgetfulness, almost, you know. And I can see Jesus asking the same question to us today, to be honest. Yeah, uh, my, re my response to the question that I posed, unless, Mason, you want to uh, pop up with anything. Okay. Um, I think there, there are two possibilities, and I'm open to either one of them, and there are two very different answers. One, I think it could be as simple as, like I joked about just a few minutes ago, that Mary's got so many tears in her eyes that she can't recognize who she's looking at. I mean, if you've ever really just been weeping, like if you're letting those tears sit in your eyes, like you, you can't see anything. Like everybody, everything's just a blob. Uh, not that I would know. I don't cry. But the... <laughs> Real men don't cry. Okay. Uh, I mean, honestly, did Jesus ever cry? The Bible never, <laughs> the Bible never says that Jesus wept, okay? But anyway, uh, option number two is... That I mean, Jesus has come back from the dead. He's he's got his glorified body, correct? So, wait, I'm getting a head shake. I would say no, mostly for the fact that he says, "Don't touch me." Let's I'm talk. We will talk about that because I, I, I that, that's an interesting. Well, I know he hasn't statement. ascended yet. Yeah, but he's got to be. I'm, mm. I mean, I'm not so, trying. To, I'm not trying to say like hard and stone fact because I know Tanner's getting ready. Like he's just waiting to shut me down. No, I'm not going <laughs> to shut you down because I, I was perplexed by that statement. Because why would she? Why would he tell Mary that, but yet allows Thomas to touch her? In touch theory. Her, in, in theory. Why y'all keep calling Jesus sir, bro? 
sorry. <laughs> I mean, he's the forgotten son. He, he's a woman, evidently. <laughs> no, no. I mean, let's not push gender on him just yet. Oh, please. <laughs> but no, because, I, I mean, I was perplexed by that. I was like, why do we presume that Thomas touched him, but then Mary's not allowed to touch him? So I, that, that's something that I think we need, we need to talk about a little bit, too. Is that in the strippers at the next one? Oh, uh, like now, now that you bring that up, Mason, I I do that that does cast doubt on the idea, but I'll, I'll go into it just for the sake of make sure the thoughts out there, because I mean he hasn't ascended yet. That that's true, and so what does it, that mean though? What was so what does that mean? I have not ascended. So what's that? Because I I was always assumed so he's not glorified, but to me, being raised again from the dead. Is glorified, but yet if he is one with the Father and one with the Son, then he should be always be glorified. But he's not God. Lazarus isn't God, well, and he's well, going to yeah, die let, again. Well, but let me, let okay, me, let duh. But you got, your only point was that he raised from the dead. Well, yeah, Lazarus raised from the dead, though. But Lazarus dies again. Jesus does not die again. Okay, I know, but we're talking about the physical body. Let me continue to think out loud. This this might resolve this. Um, so you have option A of this thought process where Jesus is still the physical Jesus that he was before he died because he is literally the physical body that was in that tomb. He got up and he left. I mean, what we're reading right now confirms that that, that physical body got up and left the tomb. Option B, how would he ascend to heaven if he was still the same plain flesh and blood body that he was prior to the cross? Because I don't think that there's any reason for us to believe that just physical flesh and blood Jesus is the Jesus that's in heaven right now, that we're talking divine son. Like a change would have had to happen, correct? I think, and, I, and this is one thing that I, I, I don't think we need to put our conjecture upon Scripture. This is, this is what I think. I think that when he rose again from, from the tomb, that he was completely glorified. That's what I. That's kind of what and I lean towards. I, I think that in heaven right now, when he is well in the in paradise, sorry, I think when he's the intercessor with the Father, he is still one hundred percent flesh, one hundred percent man, and one hundred percent God. I think he is complete. He's the one and only one right now that's completely glorified in the body and perfected the way that we will be when he comes back again. And so I think the ascending to the Father is not saying that I'm not glorified yet. I think there is there is something going something a little bit different here than just don't touch me because I'm because I, when the first thing I, I read this I was thinking so is it like a Moses situation where you know don't look upon me because I'm glorified you know let me walk by you know when God walked by Moses uh, God said you can you can look at me and behold my glory because you, but you can't look at my face so I wonder if it's this kind of same thing that you can't really fully touch me because I'm not glorified but i think that jesus was 100 glorified because it's not a lazarus situation because he's not going to die again because lazarus isn't the son of god but yet jesus is the son of god let me think out loud again and i'm still forming this thought as i say it so beware so yeah. so both y'all lock on to me because if i start spewing heresies i need someone to spear me across the table all right david so <laughs> jesus he 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 died for our sins. Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm going to start making sure. I, I'm going to start <laughs> this. Make, yeah, we're going to go basics, and we're just going to go downhill in the heresy from here. He took on our sins, and he he gave up the ghost. 
So if he is going to ascend back into heaven, obviously he can't have sin on his account. He, he has paid for it successfully. Yes. So could the argument be made that like he had to leave his body behind in some regard, but that body just happened to not be in the tomb? Because, I mean, this, this literally can't be the same Jesus that was on the cross because that, that, like, flesh no. and blood-wise, like, body-wise, because he had to take on that sin. He's not taking that sin into heaven, obviously. And I'm, I'm aware, obviously, that sin is not a physical concept. But we're talking about all the sin, past, present, and future. Like, this was the kind of struggle that, like, uh, Mason and I discussed last week. Like, that has a physical effect. It had, like, this physical, painful effect on Jesus. So... Could it be argued that this isn't the same body as the one that was in the tomb, despite the fact that body is gone? Does that so make goes, any sense? Th- so this goes to the argument. Uh, so one of those arguments is the spirit theory, is that Christ's resurrection was only spiritual in nature, and his body remained in the grave or was dead. So that body, which, I mean, it's gone, according to what they've stated. But yet, now we're saying, okay, so it's a spiritual aspect. It's a completely different body. But what about the graves that will open up when he returns? I think it's the same body, but just glorified and changed and is purified the way that it will be at the end of time. So it's the same thing when you become a Christian, because we got to think the spirit and the body are all intertwined together. Your spirit is the same spirit. It's just renewed. It's glorified. It's transformed. And the same thing with his body. It's transformed because we get witness of that because Thomas later on touches the wounds of his body. So it's the same body, just purified and glorified. Yeah, and I, I know, like I said, I'm kind of thinking out loud, so I didn't word that super well. I think a good way to, like, make a metaphor out of what I'm saying is think of, like, when Moses uh, was in the presence of God, and when he came back, he was glowing. Same body, but there's something different going on there because he had that that closeness to God. So in that same way that um, Jesus, he he died, he he paid for that sin, but that sin is no longer on him. Like he, he, it, it is finished. He completed the job. So while he does still have that, that literal flesh and blood body, like it is the same body, there is a difference in it as a result of this massive change that's occurred. Does that make a little more sense? Yeah. So let me, let me tell, let me tell you, Mason and, and Matthew, and, and what I think about this text of the difference between Mary not touching him or clinging to him versus Thomas possibly touching him, is that. I think there's some translation issues here almost, is that Mary's reaction is to hug and to cling to their Savior, not just like, are you, I mean, her. she's a very emotional person. If I saw my Savior there and I recognized it, I would want to cling to him. And so... Eh, not in 2020. Okay, well, not in 2020. The man just died. Don't kill him again. So, but I think there, there's a confusion of translation because King James says, do not touch me. But yet a more accurate version of that term is to not cling to me, do not hold on to me. So I think Mary is holding on and not wanting to let go. And I think this statement of not ascending to the Father is kind of almost like a statement of a missionary, a ministry type. It starts with the individual and then moves to a collective. The change has happened for Mary in realizing that that's the Savior. But now Jesus is like, okay, we can't stand here hugging all day. We've got some other stuff to do. Now go back and tell the disciples. And so I think that's just Jesus saying, you know, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. The, my, my job is not complete. I still got some things to do. You still got some things to do. Let's finish what we got to do, and then I'll send to the Father. So that's what I think. And I think I've read some uh, other commentaries, and that's kind of what some ideas and consensus are. That I don't think it's a, you can't touch me because I'm too holy than, than you. 
Because if that's the case, then him dwelling with us within our hearts, then that should never happen because now we can't physically or spiritually uh, be with the Father anymore. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm Mason, are, are we heretics? You got a smirk. Am I the heretic? Is Tanner the heretic? Are you the heretic and you're just realizing now? No. No. Let's just all realize that when we say heretic and heresy, we're only referring to anything that that kind of goes against the grain of normal orthodoxy. So it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It just means that you got some weird ideas. Well, that and I'm just being sarcastic. (laughs) Mason, you can't just give us that face and not, like, expand. Okay, first, I want to say it's the Holy Spirit, not Jesus, within us. Well, it's the same daggum thing. It's a trinity. So, I mean, well, ask Jesus, yes ask no. Jesus in your heart, Mason. Uh, yes and no. But <laughs> we're getting technical here. I mean, we are getting technical, but, I mean, if we're going to talk. This is probably the, the one part of the gospel that I'm always wanting in a very straight line because this is this is christianity yeah without the resurrection we shouldn't be this this chapter is christianity so yes i'm going to give a lot of weird faces because i want i want everything really lined up and really straight and so that everybody can understand now like i said there's a lot of nitpicky stuff that i really don't care about because it doesn't matter in the long run so y'all can do whatever with those be heresies in that field but it's okay (laughs) (laughs) but that that's that's my big thing that's the only thing i'm gonna that's my only thing i'm gonna nitpick on i guess well then i said that jesus coming to your life and said the holy spirit well it was saying that if he's too holy for us well yeah one he's too holy because he's freaking god oh so, um, yes, he is the holiest of holies. Yeah. So, but to say that, well, he couldn't live in our hearts, well, no, I mean, well, it, he kind of does. It, it, more than like I said, it is the Holy Spirit that communes with us because God the Son is with God the Father. But to say that, oh, we couldn't be able to handle it, well, I'm not dead yet, I don't think. At least I might want to be a little bit. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> no, I, see, this is one thing. I'm, I'm going because Emmanuel. God with us. And I think that's the only way that we could behold his glory is through Jesus dying on the cross and giving us a chance to intercede. Yet there was, so in old, and I'm also and I'm getting that picture in my mind of Old Testament with Moses going into a little crevet of a rock to see God's basically backside. And that's the only way that he could behold his glory it was to in his holiness is to, you know, as he walks by. And so there, the only way to intercede was through the sacrifice of animals and, and whatnots. But now we have the sacrifice of the Son of God himself. And I think that's the only way that we can have the presence of God now is through Christ's sacrifice. That's the only way that we can behold his glory. And we're not just like the Ark of the Covenant, touch it and you die. Now we can't. We, we can have that presence with God and touch God and him touch us that we will not just automatically die. It's because of his sacrifice. So I think this eliminates that you know, if we saw the Ark of Covenant today, if we dug, dug it up and we found it, if you touch it, I don't think anything will happen. That, that's my that's my honest opinion. I don't think anything happened because that it's it, that communion with God has transcended to something completely different and something better. Mason, what do you think about my theological word on it? 
if it even made any sense. All right, let me try I to did, boil but it. I'm trying to recall everything. Let, let me try to boil it down again since I've kind of like gotten the thought out there and thought about it. The the theory well, I don't know if this is an official theory, but it's my theory at the moment, that Jesus' physical appearance was indeed changed through the experience that he had on the cross. Same physical body, but it definitely was changed. I think that's very possible just because here's here's where I'm going to go with this, though. There was no more aging as you go through life. I mean, of course, I don't I'm, – well, I'm not going to say me because I look the same since I was seven. <laughs> but Tanner doesn't look the same as when he was my age during high school. You know, you probably – I don't know. I don't think I've seen pictures of you younger, but you probably you don't, don't want the same. to. Okay. You probably don't look the same <laughs> as you did terrifying. when you were in high school. Terrifying. But – like that aging effect is no longer real, and so if he was to have you know any bags under his eyes or anything like that, you know little little blemishes or whatever, because he was human. So I mean, it, for him to have physical, humanly bodily blemishes, freckles, you know, I've got a bajillion of those. I think you know those could be could be wiped away or whatever or anything like that. But the, the, yeah, I, I I agree. I think this is the I think this is a. A future picture of what eternity is going to be like, in the sense of like, you know, the graves busting open. You know, the first and dead, the first in Christ will, shall rise first. You know, is what Paul states, and so I think that God's going to use just like I think God's going to use our same bodies, just glorify them and purify them because mm-hmm. He loves His creation. It's, and it's the same thing like with with the earth. Well, I mean, we're not going to get into eschatology here, but yet He's not going to destroy the earth and remake a new one. He's going to renew it. You know, it says like in, uh, you know, it, like Noah and the ark. He didn't destroy the earth altogether and restart anew. He basically renewed it, but yet by flood, by water. And now in the when he comes back, he's going to renew it and purify it through fire. And so it's not like he's destroying every, destroying the planet, destroying everything in that sense, but yet he's renewing it. And so the same thing with the body. He's renewing it and glorifying it. And so I, I think that's where it's. So here... We get to see a little bit of that purification, or in the sense of like what that body does. And this is one thing I, I wasn't. I saw some uh, theologians and scholars talk about this, and I'm not 100 sure if I agree, uh, go on board. But so here's a little uh, incident that happens in verse 19. Verse 19 it starts uh, with that on that evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace be with you." After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw him, saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. I guess, I guess you're right, Mason. I'm sorry. They received the Holy Spirit, not Jesus himself. So I apologize. If you forgive someone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not uh, forgiven. I'll, I'll, st- I'll stop there real quick. So... Obviously, they're hiding a fear from the Romans and Sanhedrin coming after them because of their association with Jesus. But it's safe to also assume that the tomb being empty, with the tomb being empty, I think that fear was increased a little bit more because I would assume if we haven't seen Jesus or the body that, and we know that the tomb is empty and that news has been spread out throughout the city, that they, the Romans and the Sanhedrin would probably go after them. So I think their fears kind of escalated a little bit more. Would you Would you agree with that, or is that just my assumption? With Yeah, I'd say so. That's, yeah. So, 
Here we see a Calvinistic Jesus pops up and he doesn't even knock and, and he materializes materializes in the room. And so I heard, and let me ask you all's opinion on this, I heard some scholars and some theologians talk about this. And so this is a picture that the glorified body that we will have, that we might be able to do some things that we might not normally do in our present mortality. I was like, that's a little weird. I mean, Jesus is the son of God. He can kind of do whatever the heck he wants. If he wants to materialize in the middle of the room, he can materialize. But I don't think there's enough really evidence or words to say that our glorified bodies, when Christ returns, will be able to materialize at random places at any time. What's y'all's thoughts on that? That's a little weird. I know that's a little weird and out of This is one of the few times that I can take a page from Mason's book and say I'm not sure that I care enough to think about it that hard. <laughs> I think it's funny, too, that Jesus, instead of making remarks of rebuke and blame, of like, where were you there? Why weren't you there at the cross? Why Why are you not standing up for me? He, read, he instead of rather rebuking them, he says, peace be with you several times. I thought that was kind of an interesting contrast. Not not like really a contrast, but more of a comment. that. Yeah, I think that is a, a cool kind of change in tone, um, which I think that, I mean, that's Jesus kind of just acknowledging that like the disciples, they're, they're big boys now. Like they, they know when they've screwed up. At this point, they've they've had that experience uh, under Jesus' tutelage, and I think that that's backed up even more by verse twenty three, where Jesus is giving them quite an amount of authority uh, after he breathes mm-hmm. that Holy Spirit on them. He says, "If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld." Like it's. It's, it's interesting because as Jesus' disciples, like, we get to read about all the screw-ups throughout the, throughout the Gospels. Uh, and in Acts, like, you can tell that they've, they've learned a lot. And I'll admit the pacing of the, the narrative in Scripture is a little janky, kind of. Because, like I said, like, as you're reading the, the Gospels, like, it, it seems that every term the, the disciples are screwing up. Like, you see a lot of their failures and not a lot of their successes. Like, I mean, for instance, we uh, brought up earlier, like Peter, yeah, he walked on water, but he also sank. He also denied Christ three times, like not too long ago from what we're reading right now. Um, you hear plenty about like James and John being like entitled little, little twats. Like you hear plenty about disciples just failing, about being imperfect fallen humans. And then in Acts, suddenly they're doing this, they're doing all this uh, driving off demons and uh, doing just awesome sermons and just truly doing the work, uh, the work of Christ to, to further his kingdom. Um, it's clear to the reader, if you, if you kind of read between the lines, that they learned a lot from being Jesus' disciples. Them being named Jesus' disciples wasn't Jesus saying, you are exceptional humans and you are going to be better than anyone else at following me. So I choose you. You are, you are you are the chosen ones to be perfect. No, that was the beginning of a tutelage under Jesus to to learn from Jesus how to be like Christ. And they have these. They learn from these failures and become better. So it's clear that Jesus now ha- sees this is this is the time. I mean, the the plan has been completed uh, from his death on the cross. It's like it is time for you guys to to take some responsibilities. What do you think about the authority statement that he gives to the disciples? If you forgive anyone's sins, they their sin is forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Isn't that Jesus' job to forgive sins? That's 
I mean, that, like I said, that that's that's a big that that's a big deal. I honestly don't know what to make of it. Do you not think he maybe is talking to the Holy Spirit that has now come down? Shoot! What? Dang it! Ah! Oh! Because now we are ambassadors. We are people that speak on Christ's behalf for Him on Earth. So I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, now I feel like a daggum idiot for going on that little couple minute long tirade. That man, I. Mm. Does that? Ref- that doesn't really refute what you said. It's just. Well, sort of. I don't know. That's not how I read it. So I was. <laughs> I was speaking. <laughs> Out of he was so confident. Dang it! Do you think that Jesus had a tic tac? I'm sorry, he, Matthew. Do you think Jesus had a tic tac when he breathed upon them? It says that he actually breathed. Do you think he actually went? Rona. <laughs> <laughs> Open up, boys. <laughs> I just tied Matthew up in a knot. Well, I mean, me. <laughs> you look at what well, I think this is a. The practice is best pictured in Acts 2 when, you know, when Peter's preaching the day of the Pentecost. And we see something different about this guy, Peter. I mean, and I think the next chapter is, is one of those things that from a, a gung-ho, arrogant, prideful guy that speaks before he thinks is something completely different. And I think that the Holy Spirit kind of teaches him what to say instead of like, instead of it's me being the rock it's really christ being the rock that gives me the authority to say what i have to say it gives him evidence that this is true this is not something false that the holy spirit is guiding me because i mean in acts it talks about that he that people think that he's freaking drunk no it's the holy spirit you know it's just like that's why i'm able to talk the way that i talk and it's because the holy spirit is guiding me so that's christ working through peter that has loads of screw-ups and it's funny that we have that same authority through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, obviously. Not me, myself, not Tanner Higgins, but through the Holy Spirit. Well, um, let's read about a disciple that I can personally relate to as someone that just doesn't seem to get it until a little later. Um, good, old, good old Thomas, verses 24 through 29 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen, or because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Mm-hmm. So when I was uh, was reading that, and I was kind of reading along with, with your notes, Tanner, I like uh, what you're saying about it's not doubting Thomas, but rather it's refusing Thomas. Because, I mean, I, my whole life, it, it's been doubting Thomas. Like this is Thomas. Even after all said and done, after he's been well, no, he he hasn't had the Holy Spirit directly breathed on him yet. That that's right. Like physically, um, you have him doubting Jesus. Like what the crap? He's one of the disciples. He didn't get kicked out. He ain't Judas. Why why is he over here uh, still disbelieving? Like the, again, you're you're reading about disciples just failing at every turn. But Tanner, I'd like you to go a little in depth about uh, the logical side of Thomas that you can read into if you want to go between the lines. I mean, there's really not really much in depth you can talk about that because, I mean, Thomas is a dude that thinks rationally just like we as human beings try to do. I mean, it makes sense. He saw him die. 
to him, it doesn't make any sense why someone that he saw die or hear all this, that the Romans are dang good at what they do, that why should they be alive? Maybe that goes back to what that vision theory that they were talking about. Y'all are just tripping on acid, man. Y'all are crazy. It doesn't make any sense that he should be alive. So, I mean, logically, it makes sense that he should not be alive. And so for us, I think not only us as Christians and, or, and, and atheists and people like that, they want solid evidence of a creator. They want solid evidence that Jesus is here. And so that's what Thomas is doing. That, and I agree. I, I was like, man, he's not down. He's just, he doesn't believe. Yeah, and I mean, I know that an argument can be made that, like, obviously if the disciples are telling him something, he he should be quick to believe. But also keep in mind the disciples are people. They're fallen human beings. So I don't think we need to completely just, like, crap on Thomas because oh, I mean, he not doesn't— not even three days ago, Peter denied him. Yeah, exactly. Public, like, yeah. the disciples aren't exactly flawless arbiters of truth. Yeah. Let me also make mention is that I think we've made this before. I've made a statement of this before episodes ago, you know, when we first started talking about this podcast, this, this, when we first got on the podcast, is that thinking rationally and logically is not bad because when it comes down, I think it's a good tool to help us defend the faith apologetically because when our faith is shaken, I think we can go back to logic uh, of Scripture and, and logic of our Creator too. So, I mean, I don't want to put too much shag on Thomas, because we do the, we do the same thing, we do. I mean, there's times of, of, of doubt or unbelief when it's like, man, it doesn't make any sense. But when then we need to go back and allow faith and logic to come together to give us security in that. So it's and here, so the statement that he makes, it's like a bold claim. Unless Jesus comes up here and I stick my finger in his side and I stick my finger in his hands, I ain't gonna believe it. So it's basically like the same statement that I've heard that you've heard atheists make. It's like, I'm not going to believe in God unless He comes down and walks through that door. It's the same statement, and I think it's funny that Jesus, sassy Jesus, I always want to say, <laughs> He abides by that, and poofs. Eight days later, He comes in and does the same thing and says, "Thomas, come up here and place your fingers in my side and in my hands. Come on, you want proofs in the pudding. Come on, do it." So it's like he he was like. Okay, if you wanted to. You know, I, I think an argument can also be made that this isn't necessarily sassy Jesus, but this is satisfied Jesus. Because was it not Jesus that said that, like, you need to test the prophets, like make sure that they're not, like, making claims that don't check out, and if they are making claims that don't check yeah. out, then they're a false well, prophet. Jesus didn't have to, though. He didn't yeah, have to but, come uh, and but, appear. But he made it clear, like, if... Catered to Thomas's needs. If people claim to to be like the Son of God. If people claim to be prophets, but they're out here making inaccurate statements, like test the prophets, make sure, because if they're real, they're not going to mess up. So here you have Thomas, and I mean, I feel like the argument can be made very rightfully doubting, like, wait a second, you mean to tell me, I saw him die. We got to make sure this dude's legit. Like this isn't some impersonator, like you said, uh, one of the theories to to discredit Christ's resurrection. We got to make sure that this isn't just some impersonator. He needs to have those marks. Like, just some dude that happens to look like Jesus isn't going to have holes in his wrists. Like, I need, I need to see Those are tatted on, bro. So here you have Jesus showing up and be like, hey, look, look at you remembering what I said. All right, hey, look, holes. I'm glad you said that because I looked right ahead when we were on the last little section, and I've been wanting to say this, but I was def- debating it. 
because it could be complete heresy, but I'm glad you brought that up because now it's relevant. Mason? He's going down no. for heresy? No, 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 no. It, I just wanted to know if y'all had ever heard anybody hear this because I know you said you had a list of theories and I wanted to know if it was one of them. But since you referenced this, I'm assuming it is. Um, you said an impersonator that just happened to look like Jesus. Who did we say looked like Jesus? Thomas. Who was not at the meeting? Dang it! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and he came back eight days later, right? So I don't know, like like you said, I don't know what kind of marks somebody could have put on their hands, but eight days is a pretty good, like long enough time for a, a, a minor injury to heal. A no, minor, no, minor one, yeah. No, now he could have just stabbed himself like Jesus yeah. was nailed, and it healed in eight days. Absolutely not. But I mean, he could have poked a little hole in himself or. So you, you were right. So that, that theory is the imposter theory. Okay. It's basically saying that... Oh, yeah, I didn't remember all of them. So. Yeah, there was a doppelganger. And like we made mention before, uh, that Thomas, more likely, because he's called twin, could have the resemblance of Christ. So I wonder if he showed up with Thomas to say, look, one of us died. If he's my doppelganger... Look, yeah. And just, just to clarify have... for the listener that might be confused as to why I just, like yell bloody murder about that little revelation there. I just want to make sure it's out there, like, why my response was what it was. Because we've discussed, again, that, that Thomas was called twin because theoretically he, he looked church, like Jesus. Church history. So if yeah. there's anyone who would know to, like, have a bit of healthy skepticism in this situation, it would be Thomas. Like, he is in the absolute perfect position to be like, now hold up, just daggum in it. If, if people can get me confused with Jesus because we look alike, again, in theory— then I, I need to make sure that someone isn't pulling the exact same trick that people assume I'm pulling all the time. So he would be, the, he's the absolute perfect person to be in this situation. So it's like he's almost appealing to his skepticism yeah. by yeah. showing evidence. In which Jesus doesn't always do that with us. I mean, I'll, I'll say that. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't always reveal that sense to us. I mean, he's not walking in the door and, and saying, I'm, I exist to every atheist. But yet we have general revelation and then special revelation through Scripture. But... Thomas is, I think, it's just a special occasion here, because I mean Jesus is resurrected and he does show his, show his form to them. Um, so, what do you think about this? Because I, I, I know you may mention earlier. So the, the 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 difference of touching Jesus between Mary and Thomas, we know that Mary touches Jesus and clings to him, and then Jesus makes the invitation or he appeals to that statement that Thomas made of like, let me put my fingers in your uh, side holes and your hand holes. And stuff like that. So, I doesn't. It really doesn't directly say that Thomas touched him, does it? Yeah, and I'll admit this is this is kind of a stretch. Like I, I will acknowledge that. But if you if you wanted to make the argument that Jesus is already in his glorified body and thus can't be touched by by mere mortals, and that's why he borderline rebukes uh, Mary for wanting to cling on to him. Again, it depends on what argument you're wanting to make. That's why I don't I'm, agree with that. That's yeah, why I'm continue. saying this is kind of a stretch. To be if I'm being completely clear here. Uh, because, I mean, let's read the exact wording in verse uh, 27. Uh, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then 28 says, Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. There is no indication that Thomas followed through with actually touching. Jesus simply offered it. And I'm sure, like, as he's saying here, touch my hands, he's, he's rolling up his sleeves. And he's like, here, touch my side. And he's lifting up his shirt. Like, obviously, like, I'd imagine that Thomas can work out that this isn't just like some fancy 3D body art. There are indeed holes there. I think, I think Thomas, once he saw Jesus, yeah, didn't need knew. to touch. And, and this is where, this is one reason why I said it was sassy Jesus because he's just like, 
fine. If you wanted to touch me to bleed, yeah, here I am. And if you really, and if you really want to like get into the like the nitty gritty of the exact verbiage of scripture, verse twenty nine does say, Jesus said, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." There's no mention of like you believe because you have seen and touched. No, he doesn't specify that. He just says, are you believing because you have seen? So that, that's yeah. a little bit more proof you could throw that that's away. That's also, I believe, in First John in one of his later books, a reference like that, because that's where I know it most famously. Uh, blessed oh. are those uh, who believe and have not yet seen. Yeah. And he also makes it mentioned in the prayer. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says pray for those that will believe. Yeah, in, yeah. In a, in, a, in a future context, too. Yeah. So... He's talking about me and you, bro. John looking out for us, even though he was number one. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like, you guys are cool too, I guess, though. So uh, let's read the, the verses that cap this uh, chapter off. Verses 30 and 31 uh, reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that that's really just a, a general... Uh, repeating of the mission statement of the book of John, like reestablishing his goal in writing the things uh, that he's written. Because, I mean, this isn't the last chapter in John, but this is um, this is kind of, th- this is the end of the chapter in essence, whereas first, uh, verse, uh, the next chapter is kind of an epilogue of sorts. Yeah. Well, and to us too, like if you read the last uh, verses of chapter 21, it basically says the same thing. It's like if John says, if all the works of Jesus was written, None of the books could contain them in the world. And that's a wonderful statement. And here, I think John, he's conceding that this the book that he has written is incomplete of Jesus' works, but it is complete in the message and the nature of what Jesus came to do. And it, like, there's specific things that he wrote in this book for his message to get across that Jesus was the Son of God. That was his purpose. And I think that he's like, okay, I could write more, but it's just, it's just repetitive. You know, I, I've already made my my evidence claims of here that I was an eyewitness to this, and this is what is, is the truth uh, by what I've stated. And you can take it or leave it, but if I write any more, to be honest, it'd be just kind of repetitive. And so I think what he wrote down was intended by what he was led by by the Spirit. Yeah, he said exactly what needed to be said. Yeah. Like the the book is custom engineered to be the perfect revelation of. Jesus as the Son of God. And if you need more than what's in this book, then something else is wrong with you. Well, that's one That's one reason why I think that a lot of people, for new Christians, uh, John is always like one of the first books that people go to because... It's no it's, nonsense. Yeah, it, it's, it's straight to the point, clear cut, and to me, it's probably the most easily accessibly read. Well, uh, if anybody's paid attention to like how our last couple Sundays has went... If you look at the first chapter of Matthew, what do you have? A bunch of begats, you know, the lineage. And I mean, while as fascinating as those can be for a new Christian or somebody who's wanting to read history like that, especially for someone, you know, like me that doesn't care a whole lot just for general history, just that's pretty boring. Yeah. If you want to, like, preach the good word of mathematics to someone, you don't start out with, like, finite trigonometry. No, yeah. you give them two plus two. We start with there. Pi and stuff like that. Yeah, two plus two. That's elementary. I remember there was a class called like finite mathematics, and I wanted to sound smart, but I don't know if finite trigonometry is a thing. But anyway, that's a uh, that's that's chapter. Goodness, what chapter is this? Twenty. Yep, yeah. Yep. One more. Chapter. One more. One more, and then our first season will come to a close. 
Um, so we'll we'll see you next week. As always, we have our, our social media links in the show notes. We got our email there, so you can blast us with hate mail. Let us know um, how we need to get our crap together for the first couple minutes of, of the episode. But, <laughs> but until... If, 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 if we ever get our crap together... That's gonna be a scary episode. <laughs> I feel like that's part of the appeal of this podcast. We it could not be clearer that we're a bunch of laymen that oh we're la- we're lame the only no, the, we're lame men a, the only qualification we have for doing this this podcast is that we love Jesus like we just we want an excuse to we come together authority. and talk about him nah the only authority you have Tanner is to give us the magic words peace out.